Welcome to episode 24 of Coffee and Circuses and the second of our track specials which were recorded while we were hosting the conference here at Kent. Today I'm joined by Francis McIntosh who works for English Heritage as the curator of the Clayton collection of Roman materials at Chester's Four near Hadrian's Wall. Francis undertook her PhD which was an analysis of the collection and the impact of antiquarians on the wall at Newcastle University and this has just been published by BAR. In this episode, we'll be chatting about the book and Clayton himself, who owned five forts along Hadrian's Wall, you know, as you do, as well as other famous figures in the history of Romano-British archaeology, such as the Collingwoods and the Wheelers. We also talk about the difficulties and pressures of forging a career in archaeology today, but also what makes the subject really great to be part of. So, as always, thanks for joining me, and on to the show. <laughs> How many tracks now do you know? I don't know. I went to the, the, my first one was 2010, which was Oxford, which we went to because Newcastle was bidding to host the 2011. Newcastle was the first ever yeah. track I went oh. to. So, yeah, so I was chair of the organising committee at Newcastle oh. for 2011. I was a, I was a lowly MA student yeah. at the time, so oh, I was yeah, slightly so overawed. I was only doing my MLA. Yeah. But, um, I just, all I remember about it. Oh, I remember many things about it, but the main thing I remember is Lindsay Allison Jones came yeah. the keynote, and I was like, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. 2010 was the first, and then I went kind of every year for a few years, and then I haven't been for at least three or four years, because um, so, in my job, I'm a collections curator for English Heritage, in the last few years we've always been doing new exhibitions, and they open for the new season, which is the 1st of April, oh. or around then. Um, so this is the first one I've been to for a few years. It's been nice. Yeah. Enjoying it? Enjoying Canterbury? Yes, it's good. Yeah, I've been to Canterbury before. We had Roma Fines Group uh, meeting here maybe 18 months ago. Mm. So I've seen, and I saw more of the city last time because I stayed down in the city. But no, it's been a good conference. Track's always good because it's really friendly and um, good range of papers. A lot less shiny things this year. <laughs> um, the session I was just in, the um, worth of material culture, was saying, you know, we're the only ones talking about material culture. And there has been stuff, you know, objects in other papers, but there's been, there's been broader spread of sessions, I think, yeah. um, this year. Yeah. Some big ideas being put out there this year yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. Zenith's plenary lecture, for example. And yeah, it's, it feels in some respects that... It feels quite good. Uh, maybe I've been biased here because I've been on the organising committee, but it feels quite good more generally for track that I feel like this track has raised questions about how we approach archaeology as a community and track as a community and kind of pushing that forward. So hopefully it has ramifications that carry on. Like, along yeah, I think track's developed quite a lot, like both the conference but then the standing committee and what they do, you know, because it's you know, 26 years, isn't it? 27 years mm. um, since it first started. And I think it was quite active and not revolutionary but you know forward thinking when it first started and I think it did kind of not stagnate but it just kind of flowed along for a little while and it's kind of revitalized in the last six or seven years I think with new blood in and mm. um yeah because I think it had got to a point where you went to a paper and it was either just all Roman stuff and there wasn't really any theory or it was just theory for theory's sake, yeah without support I think now people are a lot have become better and I think it's part of a wider issue not non-issue, you know, change in our field that people are getting better at properly integrating theory into using it with data and material, you know, whether that's field data or, you know, small finds or whatever. So I think, yeah, it's a good place. Mm. 
Are you presenting this year? No, no. I'm not presenting this year. Um, I've um, not done much research for a while because work's been so busy, but I've just published my um, book, so my PhD. So. Which is on sale. Which I is hear, on sale, yeah. the Clayton so Collection. With what, is, what is the book about? So my PhD was on the Clayton Collection, which is a 19th century collection of Roman artefacts um, excavated and found on Hadrian's Wall by a man called John Clayton. A lot of it's on display at Chester's Museum. And I was funded, really lucky, I was funded by the trustees of the Clayton Collection who own the collection to kind of look into the history of the collection, how it was, where all the material was found, because it never been really looked at, um, and then do case studies on certain aspects of the material. So I finished my PhD, graduated July 2017, um, and then work was just manic but I thought I can't let it go too long because I you forget what you've done and I wanted to get it out there because you talk to a lot of people and you want people to see your research and read your research because otherwise there's no point doing it yeah and you don't want to be that person who in 20 years time at a conference puts a hand up and moans says well I've got one of those from Chester's and you haven't referenced that because you never published it because how can someone see something if it's just in you know an unpublished you know, paper. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think it helps a little bit to have maybe a little bit of time afterwards to take a step away from it. But as you say, I think it's bored. Don't leave it too long. I know people that have left it a very long time, and they quite they regret that now. And it's one of those things that you can very easily let slide. And, yeah. And then it is like if you have left it too long, coming back to it, you are like, oh my god, what the hell was I talking? Like, what? How did this even start? Yeah, and things can change, and so you need to kind of give yourself a bit of time so you can recover from it but also actually look critically at it so you can add things and you know fix some of your mistakes if you think you made them um but also not so long that scholarship might have changed so much that some of your ideas are so out of date that there's almost then no point publishing it but really the data still needs to be out there so yeah it's a, it's a really fine line isn't it between how long you let it go but um no it's a real weight off my shoulders to get it published definitely yeah, it's very exciting. I went and had a little selfie with my book at the, <laughs> at the stall, sent it to my mum and dad. So yeah, it was um, yeah, it was good. So my next plan is to do like a smaller, more popular book, maybe kind of with pen on sword or you know someone like like you know a, more like a ten pound thing about Clayton and the Clayton collection because we redid the museum at Chester's in twenty sixteen. Because when you go into the museum at Chester's, it's not story of Chester's, which a lot of site museums are, particularly on Hadrian's Wall. You know, you go to you know, house and it tells you about house Roman houses, but the Museum at Chester's is the Clayton Museum. It's all about his life and all the because he owned five forts by the time he died. Wow. You know, and twenty miles of Hadrian's Wall. So there's stuff in the museum and in his collection from all these different sites. So we um, changed the story in um, the museum that we told, made sure it was clear there's a Clayton story. So people are learning. They go in and they learn about a bit about Clayton in the collection. So they want to find the staff are finding that people are asking. Um, you know a bit more info so um, that's kind of my next game goal really is yeah to do something so people can find out a bit more I have to read the whole thesis so it'll maybe more focus on him as a person and like, his history and also he's really really important in the development of Newcastle City in the 19th century and things which I had to start learning about 19th century things when I did my PhD which I never expected to do so yeah it's interesting. I, I find those things fascinating. Increasingly, in recent times, I've gotten more and more interested in antiquarians. Have you ever read the book uh, Under Another Sky? Oh no! The um, Journeys Around Roman Britain book. It came out a few years ago. I only recently read it. It rings a bell, but I've not read it. No. 
I think that's what it's called. Yeah. But that book was about the author who she was she studied classics, a journalist, but then she's kind of gone around Britain. Yeah. Each chapter's on a different area of Britain. So she visits a site or, or sites and she talks about the Roman history of the site. But she also talks about how it looks in the modern day. But she also talks an awful lot about the figures, the antiquarians that kind of bridge the gap between. Uh, and a very interesting example there is the likes of Mortimer Wheeler. And she talks in there about things like Maiden Castle, for example, and Wheeler's excavation there and how there's a large cemetery there. But his interpretation of the cemetery as a war cemetery, she suggests in the book, is coloured by his own experiences in World War I in the Somme. That he came back from there, and he sees he sees war that reflection in what he's excavating from Rome and Britain, and it it was just interesting, like reading about the kind of background of some of those people, you know, prominent names like him. That one was Collingwood as well, and alongside talking about Mortimer Wheeler, Tessa Wheeler as well, and it's just, it was just fascinating to actually have an yeah. insight into their lives and how they're kind of conditioned, not intentionally, but they've come out of interpretations or thought about things that basically obviously everyone's everyone's interpretation was bound up in your own perspective and how their experiences influenced their approach to the archaeology yeah and it's you can see it looking back and someone will do it with us in 50 years won't they but yeah often what we know about a site is influenced by one person mm-hmm. or one group of people you know going back to the same example at Chester's Roman Fort when you go everything you see was dug up by John Clayton and his workmen there's been no excavation since. So a modern visitor now goes to see Chester's Fort. What they're seeing is what Clayton thought we should see of Chester's mm. Fort. And what we know about Chester's is from what Clayton dug up. And you know, obviously we can reevaluate the remains that are visible and the objects. But yeah, it's completely clouded by they did and why, you know, the reasons they thought they did it. And, you know, you look at their interpretations, don't you, of things. And you can see that that they're working through a lens, you know, Clayton and Colin Bruce, who, uh, Colin Bruce published a lot of Clayton's excavations. You know, they're in the Victorian era, they're in the Empire era, they love all the stuff that shows the Romans bringing civilization to Britain, but they don't keep kind of the courseware pottery and things like that that we would be interested in because it's just, they're working in their time. So, mm. yeah, it's um, really interesting to go back into kind of that, development of our of the study of archaeology the um society of antiquities of london did a really good book to celebrate their, their 150th anniversary maybe oh no maybe 250 years um it was really expensive but it's now much cheaper <laughs> um and it's, that's got a lot of info about that kind of development of the study of the past and you know all the gentlemen societies and mm. the early literary and philosophical societies and you know it's fascinating because there's just small groups of people but that had huge influences and i was talking to Ellen Swift earlier about her work with the Petrie Collection and um, how did these people do so much? You know, when you look at actually what they achieved in their life, they were just, they seem to have a different level of industry to us and I don't think it's just that we watch more TV. I just, I don't know, maybe we are just slower in what we do or whether we're more methodical in what we do but if you think about, you know, I think some of the real famous people and it's not just in archaeology, you know, think about Brunel, point to SS Great Britain, what he achieved in his lifetime, you know, we just don't have that level of kind of productivity anymore. I don't know. It's 
quite interesting to yeah, look back. I, I guess. I imagine it. There must be, I can't think of anyone off the top of my head. No. I imagine there must still be people out there. I mean, the other question about that, I suppose, is that though some of those people, how much of that is them taking credit for what is actually a largely a team effort? I mean, to go back to Morton Wheeler as an example, yes. I'd say probably only more recently has Tessa Wheeler started to get the uh, the attention that she deserved. I mean, yeah. by and large, I mean, reading that book was interesting because, as it pointed out, if you a number of the people that were students on those digs that the Wheelers ran looked to Tessa as being the one that they looked up to because Mortimer would kind of go off and play golf or something and then come back at lunchtime and just do an interpretation. Yeah. And then and the go credit. off again. But then Tessa was the one who was actually running the day-to-day site. Yeah. And so a lot of the students that came through that looked up to her. And, and obviously, I mean, when I had um, Ian Haynes on the on the podcast uh, a few weeks ago, Ian was really big on the fact that, you know, archaeology is a, it's a team sport. And I, I do think in the past probably we, that, that's the problem as well. These kind of rich gentlemen had at their disposal, you know, the ability to have people working under them and perhaps they took more credit than they maybe should have done yeah sometimes. I think there is part of it but I think there also were more Victorian polymaths than we have now you know in terms of what you know, subject areas they were good at you know when you think about languages and mm. someone could be really good at languages and maybe really good multiple other things and I think it's quite interesting I don't know if it's the way we learn or the way we focus our mm-hmm. yeah, brains but I was just thinking yeah. a very fascinating example of that again is, is Collingwood uh, or R.G. Collingwood where he is very famous in the study of Roman Britain. He was also a very, well, he was a lecturer in, I think, philosophy. Yeah, philosophy, Oxford. yeah. And if you talk to people that are philosophers, they would no idea he had anything to do with Roman Britain. But then if you speak to most people that study Roman Britain, they probably don't realise that his actual profession was as a philosopher. Exactly. And it's crazy, like, as you say, that he, he's branched both of those subjects and being a massive name in them, almost completely split, though, in terms of one side doesn't realise that he was on the other side as well. And it's, I think that's probably true. I mean, nowadays, you, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody that jumps between subjects yeah, like that. Yeah, and I don't know, I think maybe we've become, I don't know if we've become more specialist, and I think there's a lot more knowledge out there that we need to have to be a specialist. But, yeah, you don't become a specialist or, you know, well-known in multiple fields. You might work with other people. It's all, you know, interdisciplinary studies are really mm. um, in vogue, aren't they? Which are, archaeologists have always been interdisciplinary, hasn't it? But, yeah, I don't think you can be a specialist in multiple fields anymore that you, yeah. as you used to. Um, no. I suppose the argument could be made as well, though, that... Has it been a case that things have become more complicated as well? I mean, you were saying like Clayton didn't keep the coursework pottery. Nowadays, if you want to do an interpretation of a site, you have to cover a lot more material than you would have had to do like a hundred years ago. And the analysis and understanding of that, the synthesis of all this material, particularly something like track, is I don't think people a hundred years ago, or even maybe fifty years ago, would have seen it as being that complicated. And now we're starting to realise actually, you know, the, the idea of discrepant identity, like the, you know, even just this idea of we go from the Iron Age to the Romans to the Anglo-Saxons is not so straightforward. The kind of word it keeps coming up is compartmentalisation of, of history. And it's, yeah, I do wonder if, if nowadays we just realise there's a lot more nuances to it as well. I agree. And yeah, we make a lot more data. Mm. And now, you know, if you do a PhD or an Emily or even, you know, just a small research project, you know, it's not seen as valid unless you look at a huge amount of data from other sites or other places, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas I think probably 100 years ago, you'd just write your report and that would be it and you wouldn't necessarily be expected to compare it to many other places Mm -hmm. or there weren't as many 
sites excavated or other people doing things so you were the only person who ever looked at them so yeah it's very different I remember having conversations during our PhD days when um, you know we see a reference to some study and we're like oh it's another study we've got to look at because you know 50 years ago there wasn't this many people doing this work so there wasn't as much to look at so you can see why things have how things have changed there's just there's just so much stuff yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just so much and it goes back to what you're saying about productivity as well. There is just too much stuff now because you yeah. feel like there's all these programs on like Netflix, Amazon Prime that you want to watch, and you know everything's so on demand now. Yeah. Like I just feel like yeah, it is. It is very difficult. I think nowadays, unless you're of a certain kind of mindset, to sit down at a desk and be able to just work yeah. and just knock stuff out. And I suppose as well, let's go back to the point previous as well. The other thing they didn't have to deal with probably was peer review. <laughs> yeah, good old yeah. peer review. Yeah, um, and also you. If you did a PhD, all you just have to do is your PhD, whereas now you've got to do research skills things, you know, that the university section, you have to do some teaching, you have to present at a certain number of conferences. So it's also, if you want to get forward in academia or even in kind of archaeology, you've got to have so many more strings to your bow, I think, mm. than you used to have to. And because there's more of us wanted to get into either academia or heritage or archaeology, whatever level of archaeology it just gets more more and more exacerbated doesn't it i think 20 30 years ago if you wanted to be a museum curator you might just have to have a degree in archaeology whereas now i don't think you even get shortlisted you haven't got an ma in museum studies and it's the same same in all fields not just archaeology and heritage but yeah i think with more of us doing it it becomes more competitive so then you have to have more strings yeah to your bow and yeah, it's it's just hard, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you don't want, you don't want to feel like you're constantly ranting or, or moaning, but um, you know, every research field is like that. Every you know, I know people who are in gen- genetics and in biology, and it's as hard there to get an academic job as it is in archaeology because you know the numbers. It's just a never decreasing pyramid, isn't it? It's like the Roman imperial, the, the, <laughs> the, the Roman kind of political ladder, isn't it? You know, there's yeah. so many of this level, less of the next one, less of the next one, and. Yeah. Yeah. It's just one who could be emperor in that, maybe vice chancellors. <laughs> I don't know if you got on the record of that. Ah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's, it's just uh, the landscape at the moment, job wise, is yeah. not fantastic. But yeah, yeah. it's, it, well, hopefully, uh, say these things go around in, in cycles and hopefully it picks up again. And I, I mean, I brought this up actually when Xena was doing a plenary in the, the hope that the kind of perception in the wider world through things like the media starts to change of archaeology. I think the idea of demonstrating archaeology is a lot more diverse than uh, people, I think, have the, the traditional mindset of it being, and that it's more open to embracing new people coming into it than it has in the past. But at the same time, it's difficult then to promote that and then also be like, don't know if you can get a job at the end of it. Yeah. Know, that's, that's the difficulty. It's, okay, we want to push for opening it up to you know people from different backgrounds and diversifying the field, but yeah, as I say, it's just... It's, at the same time, you do feel a little bit guilty because are we doing that because we want to feel better about ourselves? To just and because if you can't give somebody a, or I mean, it isn't just feel better about ourselves because it improves the field. But at the same time, there's that sense I think of uh, the difficulty of how do you entice people in when you, it's very difficult to, to demonstrate some what the payoff is going to be. I always have that level of guilt because I'm really lucky because I've wanted to be an archaeologist since about eight or nine. Um, we actually had a fancy dress party a few weeks ago for a friend's birthday and you had to come what as what you wanted to be when you grew up 
and it was all archaeologists going to the party. So I thought, oh, there's going to be loads of people dressed as archaeologists. Because a lot of us are, you know, lifelong fans. So I spoke to my mum and dad and said, did I ever want to be anything, you know, before? Can I go with anything different? And they can't remember me, you know, saying anything about it. So, and I'm still passionate and I get to work in the field. But you do feel guilty if you kind of inspire somebody, either through a talk or actually having a chat with them or if they come and do a placement. If you think, if you kind of feel like you've, being a factor and then then going to study archaeology and wanting to stay in the field because you're kind of setting them up for a really hard time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not so much doing an archaeology degree because lots of people can do do an archaeology undergraduate degree and they know they don't want to go into the field but they just want to get the great skills that you get and have an interest in three years. But yeah, you feel like if you've inspired someone to really want to do this as a job or stay in this field it's kind of, you feel a little bit guilty because you think, you want them to because you love the subject and you want someone else to love it, you know, and do it. But then you think, oh no, but look what I've let you in for, you know, a really struggle to get a job and then you'll never get paid very much. And yeah, but it's it's hard, isn't it? It's a hard balance. Are you a Star Wars fan at all? I lift, uh, no, yeah. Okay. I, just, <laughs> I was going to say this in a full flag, but if yeah. you've got no idea what I'm talking about. I always have a flashback to, uh, in, in Star Wars Episode 1, that's now only 20 years old, jeez. There's a conversation there where the Jedi Knight Qui-Gon Jinn is talking to young Anakin, who grew up to be Darth Vader, and Anakin's like, I want to be a Jedi Knight. And Qui-Gon's telling him, like, it's a hard line. Yeah. And he's, like, like listing like some of the downsides to it. And Anakin's like, I still want to do it. And I kind of feel like that's the kind of position I take for a bit. Like, I'm not saying to people, like, don't do this. Because yeah. I've gotten so much out of doing archaeology. I love doing it. Exactly. I don't want to change career. I am very happy doing it. But there are times where I'm sat there like, oh, you know, you, you have to, you basically have to prepare yourself that it's not going to be a smooth ride. Do no. not think you're going to go from, like, perhaps from undergraduate to MA to PhD to, to becoming a lecturer, like, and just go yeah. one after the other and it's going to be plain sailing you have to set yourself up knowing that you are going to fail that you are probably going to have to move a number of times and accept you... no's and start again and that it's not a nine to, even if so technically I've got a nine to five job ish because I'm a museum curator which has got much more structured hours than you know say if you're a lecturer but I go to the evening lectures you know I go to weekend conferences I organise monthly lectures for our local antiquarian society. You know, I do reading in the evening. So it's you, because it is your passion, it's also really hard to switch it off and have that work-life balance because if you enjoy it, you work kind of more, you know, or, you know, you spend more time on it. But it's, it's, I think it's harder to have that division than if it's just something you see as paying the bills, isn't it, as well? Mm. So it's, I think that's why people can have burnout because... With and I think it's with any field where they feel passionate about it, not just you know in archaeology, isn't it? That yeah, you just think, oh, just do that little bit extra. Oh no, I really enjoy that. I want it. will add to my CV, and it's it's a really hard balance of doing it because you like it, but still having time for yourself. And I think there's a lot of people because there's so many people striving to get that extra point up or become number five on the list rather than number six when there's five positions. That it's difficult I think to always know when to have a break because I'm quite an advocate of trying to stick within vague sensible working hours and taking weekends off or having holidays but you see it even from MA level and yeah it's not a healthy environment I think to be in I think there's a lot of 
problems you hear more, more recently it's kind of increased you know academics under increasing pressure mm. well yeah. I mean going back to what we talked about earlier with uh, the archaeologists of the past or the antiquarians and their outputs didn't have to deal with things like the ref for no, example as well there's no ref you know they didn't have to do all this admin because you know the university had cut the admin staff they didn't have all of the pressures of the pastoral care they didn't have the pressures that the students were paying huge amounts of money so expected a certain level you know you know, you had a PhD student, you might see them once a term. You know, it wasn't necessarily better for the PhD student, but it's a different level that's expected from them, isn't it? And I think, um, yeah, I, don't think that, I think there is a real issue with the amount that's expected from a lot of people in this field, and you do see it draining them. I'm very glad I'm not in academia, and I'm very glad I took that decision early on to take that pressure off myself, because I think it's the hardest in any... I think in any discipline, academia is a super hard job, but um, in archaeology, it's just kind of non-stop, isn't it, really? Yeah. <laughs> it's been good. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't want to kind of go... We're kind of outlining all the negatives, but I suppose I do want to add the caveat at the end that, as I said before, I, don't, I wouldn't change it. Oh, no. Um, I've, yeah. You know, I've had to... I've spent a lot of time marking essays, and I will spend an awful lot of hours in the coming weeks marking essays, like a tremendous number of hours. But at the same time, the trade-off of it has been so great. And and I also, from an academia perspective, the fact that I do have students, and some of them are here actually at the conference, that have come who are clearly getting stuff out of it, that are enjoying it, and are enthusiastic about it, and want to go on and carry on in archaeology yeah. or heritage in some capacity. You know, the times where I've sort of sat there and I'm just like, oh. When you have that, that's that more than makes up for it, and I'm of so. Of course, it, it does. It's, it's just knowing that you. Yeah. I suppose the the basic thing. I mean, I know this sounds very altruistic, but there is a kind of sense of like, at least I know I've made a difference in some way to somebody yeah. in doing it. Yeah. I'm like, that's actually contributed, and to somebody else's life in what I hope is a positive way. Yeah. And as I say, I mean, I, I I'm pretty upfront with my students as well in terms of. I, I make it quite clear to, to the ones that, I mean, particularly the ones that I see quite often, the, the precariousness of my own job and the situation overall with, with academia and archaeology, because I don't think you should, you don't want to go into it with rose tinted glasses. You're like, this is hard, it's difficult. Yeah. But if you enjoy it, then, you know. More than worth it. Because you can have a really rubbish day, even if you're just filing or typing something up and you're not archaeology at all, but at least you have a rubbish day, but the next day, you might get to show students in a store and stuff that they're, like, they're fascinated with, or it never gets old walking through the museum and someone's reading my label and says to someone, oh, isn't that fascinating? Mm-hmm. Like, that is the best feeling ever, that you've been able to explain something to somebody which has enhanced their visit to that site or has, um, you know made a difference to them for me you know it was really exciting so Kevin Green who's obviously an amazing archaeologist at Newcastle um, also a really lovely man he sent me an email to say how he really liked the new museum at Corbridge um, and um, he knew it was also really good because his cousin who doesn't really like history but was walking the Hadrian's Wall path because it's a long trail you know so lots of people who walk the Hadrian's Wall path don't do it because it's a Roman monument they do it because it's just another long distance trail um, and he said oh and she stopped at Corbridge and had to stay so long that she didn't walk the last bit oh wow and I think that's that's I'm not saying that for bigging up myself or the museum but the fact that Kevin Green who 
every, lots of people will know as this you know really eminent scholar of introduction to archaeology. He took the time to write an email saying that to me. And there's so many people like that in our field who will take that extra time to either write you a reference or if you ask them a question in a conference they haven't got time to answer it, they'll take your email address and send you that information later. Or they'll say hello in the corridor when you're having a rubbish day. And I think going back to our thing about having teams, archaeology is so reliant on us working with other people and that's what makes it you know, such a great discipline, I think, because we've got so many amazing people. You know, you get to see, even if you only see them once a year at a conference or every six months, you always know you could send them an email and ask them, um, oh, I remember you studied this, and and everyone's always really willing to help, mm. which, yeah, you yeah. couldn't, you know, you, you can't buy that level of kind of helpfulness and friendliness and, yeah. Mm. That is a very positive note to end yes. on. Uh, I will say very quickly, You've got the book out, so yes. what's the name of the book again? It's um, The Clayton Collection, Archaeological Appraisal of a 19th Century Collection from Hadrian's Wall. You can just chuck that into Google and it'll, it'll yeah, come published up. published by BAR. Brill. Anything yeah. else? Oh, not Brill. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, not Brill. <laughs> <laughs> um, anything else at all that you want to bring up? I mean, you, did you say the new exhibition? Yeah, the... well, um, so I'm a museum curator at Fingers Heritage and we've... Um, it's just less than a year old. It's our new museum exhibition at Corbridge and at Bird Oswald. Um, and, you know, I'd love people to visit and um, send me their opinions. Yeah. I'm on Twitter as at Wall Curator. Right. Thanks a lot. No problem. <laughs>